This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. We need to achieve greater coherence and greater comprehensiveness in American foreign policy. Let me explain. The U.S.-China relationship, the most important in the world, but clearly the United States does need to have a foreign policy that is coherent and assigns the appropriate priority to this relationship, noting that we're not just the biggest geostrategic rival of each other, we're also among our biggest trading partners. So this is very different from the days of the Cold War. And I think if you recognize the centrality of the U.S.-China relationship, uh, if you recognize the need to do this in trade relationship terms, in alliance relationships, that you would recognize that there are areas in which we could improve the coherence of what it is that we are doing, and we could also make it more comprehensive. Russia. would love to get your thoughts on Vladimir Putin, why he does what he does. Is there a way for us to moderate that behavior? Is there well, a big idea there? I think there is. And I think it starts with understanding Putin's objectives. I think you have to acknowledge that Russia is more than just what some have pejoratively described as a gas station with guns or a gas station with nukes. Uh, It's a player we should seek to engage. Uh, We should always have dialogue. And when it comes back to China and the the biggest relationship in the world, uh, we should very much have strategic dialogue with them. It's imperative that they understand truly what are our vital national interests in our interpretation, and we should understand what theirs are and then try to figure out how to come to agreement in areas where there are differences. The same is true when it comes to Russia. General David Petraeus served as the director of CIA from 2011 to 2012. Prior to his service there, General Petraeus served 37 years in the United States Army. His last assignment in the Army was as commander of the International Security Assistance Force and commander of U.S. Forces Afghanistan. His other four-star assignments included serving as commander of the U.S. Central Command and commanding general of the multinational forces in Iraq. General Petraeus is currently the chairman of the Global Institute at the private equity firm KKR, where he supports KKR's investment committee, portfolio companies, and global analysis. I just had a chance to sit down with General Petraeus to discuss the importance of leadership in the national security arena 
and one of the key aspects of a successful leadership strategy. And just a note for today, we had a bit of construction noise during the taping, so I apologize in advance if it comes through on the podcast. We'll be right back with a discussion with General Petraeus after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From training warfighters to modernizing platforms to defeating UAVs with lines of code, Raytheon is working across networks, markets, and continents to protect every side of cyber. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. David, welcome to the show. It is great to have you. It is great to be back with you, Michael. So, David, I read everything you write. And a year ago, I read something particularly interesting. Um, And I think it's relevant to bring it up because we're coming to spring again. And you wrote a piece about why people shouldn't do sit-ups. That struck me because since I met you, I had been doing an awful lot of sit-ups. So what's the story behind no sit-ups? Well, I read everything you write too, Michael. And in this case, look, it took me, uh, I don't know, three or four decades to realize that sit-ups, particularly what might be termed buddy-held sit-ups, which is what we used to do in the military, in the Army, uh, and we did it competitively. So you would do as many of these as you could in in two minutes as possible. Uh, someone holds your feet down, your hands were behind your head, therefore yanking on your neck and also doing damage to your lower back. Uh, and again, as I said, it took me some decades in the Army, same number of decades to realize that this is probably not the best possible exercise to develop abdominal strength and that there are others that are better that do not cause damage to your neck or your lower back. Right. right. Um, well, I've stopped doing them now. So you've got to get the big ideas <laughs> right. right. And it concludes on how do you build your abs. So given your background and your experience, we could take this in a thousand different directions, but I thought it would be most interesting to our listeners and certainly a bit different than what we normally do on the show if we focused on something that you call big ideas and you just you just raised them. And I know you see the concept as important, if not critical, to leadership. So maybe the place to start is what is the concept of big well, ideas? I, big ideas essentially are the big overarching strategic concepts that guide an organization. So if you are, for example, commanding the surge in Iraq, you got to get the big ideas right. And I have often noted that the surge that mattered most was actually not the additional 25,000 forces. It wasn't the surge of, of troops. It was the surge of ideas. And most of the big ideas were 180 degrees different from what we'd been doing prior to the surge. We had been consolidating on big bases uh, and handing off control to the Iraqis. And we realized that that was not working. We had to go back into the neighborhoods to secure the people, and we actually had to take back control, in many cases, from the Iraqi security forces. We had to promote reconciliation. A huge idea was a recognition that you couldn't kill or capture your way out of an industrial strength insurgency. You needed to reconcile with as many as the rank and file as you could while even more aggressively pursuing the irreconcilables, the leaders of the different uh, al-Qaeda and Sunni insurgent groups and then also the Shia militia organizations. So a strategic leader, I think, has four huge tasks. First, to get the big ideas right. Second, to communicate them effectively through the breadth and depth of the organization. Uh, Third, to oversee the implementation of the big ideas. And then fourth, in a formal way, because that's the best way to ensure that it is done, because otherwise you can overlook it, 
to determine how to refine the big ideas, which to jettison, which new ones to adopt, how to modify the others, and do it again and again and again. And by the way, this is absolutely applicable in the civilian world and the business world. If you look at, for example, um, what Reed Hastings has done as the strategic leader of Netflix, you recognize that he's reinvented Netflix four times. There have been four sets of big ideas. First was to get movies in the hands of viewers without brick and mortar like Blockbuster, and that essentially Mm -hmm. started Blockbuster eventually going out of business. There's one left, I think, in Big Bend, Oregon or somewhere. Um, Second big idea was to allow viewers to download movies. uh, Internet speeds were fast enough. The third big idea was to actually produce content. That was $100 million on House of Cards and all the rest. And the fourth uh, was to do Blockbuster uh, movies basically to challenge the Hollywood production studios. Again, that's an oversimplification. There were other big ideas about going global and et cetera. But you can see that concept. And again, in Iraq, I can show you what the big ideas were before and then what the big ideas were after. And again, it was the change in big ideas that was even more important than the additional forces that we got. And by the way, others all saw this. This wasn't something we we came to this together. uh, But that is the the most important task of a strategic leader is indeed to get the big ideas right. So, David, two questions. Where do they come from? How do you develop them when you take over an organization? And how many should you have? Is there potential to have too many? How do you think about all that? Well, the, the second question first, I think generally, give or take a few, five is about the right number, uh, any more than that, and they're just diluted. Um, By the way, those five or so, give or take, become topics that you raise every time you talk to the organization, Uh, every communication that you have. As a battalion commander, we had five as an infantry battalion commander, and I think that many of the members of that battalion to this day would say, oh, Petraeus was crazy about these big five and they can re- recite them still because they heard them at every single unit that gathering. That means you were successful and, and, in communicating them. <laughs> well, and you have to, again, you, repetition is in, important, but uh, also developing the programmatics for these five. Again, it's not enough to just say that we are going to promote physical fitness or discipline or small unit drills and live fires. You then have to have programmatics that go with them. Generally, the process of developing the big ideas, uh, especially if you have the time to do it, and I offer that caveat because in the case of the surge, we didn't have the time once I actually arrived in theater. We did that process prior to when we developed the counterinsurgency field manual and and sat down with those who had been in Iraq for one or, or two tours already. Um, generally, this process is one that is inclusive. Uh, it is iterative. Uh, it is transparent. And you'll remember when we did this in the CIA uh, that we sent out uh, an email to everybody in the entire workforce uh, and solicited contributions to the big ideas. And in that case, what we asked for was uh, input from all the CIA officers. What are the enduring big ideas that should or enduring missions that we should obviously therefore continue uh, and what are the emerging missions that we should identify and to which we should devote more resources? Uh, and that was a very iterative, very inclusive. As I recall, we got 
nearly a thousand right, right. emails the first weekend. Right. It wasn't even during the work week. Right, uh, right. And so people do get excited about being part of this and you do want it to be as inclusive and transparent. And, and then in, inevitably it ends up being iterative because you don't these my experience, at least, is that you can't find a tree under which you sit and get hit on the head by Newton's apple fully formed. Right. Uh, you tend to get the kernel of a big idea. You have to shape it. And that comes through dialogue and discussion and and all the back and forth that this process entails. But you do want it inclusive and iterative because you want people to feel that they are a part of it. You don't want them feeling excluded uh, Otherwise, they're not going to implement it. Exactly right. Or right. They, they won't do it wholeheartedly right. or right. they'll feel that they weren't part of it, so therefore they won't right. feel ownership for it. That's not to say that every idea that comes to you is going to be a great p- potential big idea. It does mean that you should certainly uh, consider what people do provide in terms of input. By the way, there is a test at the end of all this, and that is if people actually do question the big ideas – sufficiently, you might actually wonder if you've really got the big ideas right Right. uh, or not. Right. So, David, let's make this a little bit harder. Let's move from the concept of big ideas and some of the examples you provided to what you think should be the big ideas today that should frame American foreign policy. And I know that's a tough question. I've actually been thinking a great deal about this. Uh, And uh, like you, I am a non-resident senior fellow at the Belfer Center in Harvard. And like you, therefore, I do a project or two a year. And one of those projects really has to do with what should be the big ideas for American foreign policy. And I think that the biggest of these is that we need to achieve greater coherence and uh, greater comprehensiveness in American foreign policy. Let me explain. The U.S.-China relationship, the most important in the world. And by the way, let me just state up front, I would like to see this relationship be one that is mutually beneficial, that is not seen by either country as a zero-sum affair, that that we can prosper together. Uh, But clearly the United States does need to have a foreign policy that is coherent and assigns the appropriate priority to this relationship, noting that we're not just the biggest geostrategic rivals of each other or competitors. We're also among our biggest trading partners. So this is very different from the days of the Cold War and the face-off between the U.S.-led West and the Soviet Union. There was not that kind of trading relationship, to put it mildly. Um, now, if a particular country is the priority or a particular relationship is a priority – you then need to subsume others. They, they need to be supporting efforts, as in the military, where you have a main effort and then everything else supports that. Uh, so in this case, you would ask if you're going to have a comprehensive approach, and that's the other element that I think we need in American foreign policy, coherence and comprehensiveness, uh, then you would have to ask how would you structure your trade relationships. And, of course, you would then inevitably ask whether we shouldn't return to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, of course, when we pulled out, went ahead, and they did it minus us. Uh, You would ask, uh, when it comes to alliances and partners, um, how hard should you uh, beat up your NATO partners for some of their failure to meet 2% of GDP? Now, I think that is right to insist on that, to uh, encourage that. But again, you want these allies with you. Uh, you want all of your partners with you. What how, what should the relationship be with the G7? How hard, again, should you push them? 
And I think if you recognize the centrality of the U.S.-China relationship, uh, if you recognize the need to do this in trade relationship terms, in alliance relationships, uh, in a variety of other ways, uh, that you would recognize that there are areas in which we could improve the coherence of what it is that we are doing, and we could also make it more comprehensive. I say that noting there are numerous elements of this already certainly present. Uh, there are activities, the uh, shift in resources gradually to Asia, the so-called rebalance that was started under the Obama administration is very much continued under this administration. And in fact, in many cases, uh, even where there are tweets that seem to be the contrary, if you follow the troops, follow the money and follow the policy, you'll find out that there are uh, elements of what could be packaged very much into a very coherent and also comprehensive approach. But that would be the biggest of the big ideas about American foreign policy. Maybe just pick off a couple of the other issues, big issues of the day, David, in the context of big ideas, maybe in the context of coherence and and comprehensiveness. Uh, North Korea, how do you think about the problem? How do you think about the approach the president has taken? What would you be advising him to do at this point? Well, The problem is significant. Uh, Clearly, the threat posed by a North Korea that could have a nuclear weapon and a missile to deliver it that could hold our cities uh, at threat is a very significant concern, rightly. Uh, You have seen a president who, I think, to be fair to him, said, so how did that conventional approach work in the past? What did we get? And I I note this, observing that you have, have... been publicly identified now as having been part of that. In fact, during the time that I was privileged to be the director of the CIA and you were the deputy director. Um, But that did not actually get us uh, that far. And so I think he said, let me try to be unconventional. Uh, Let's try for the big bang here that let's, because of personal magnetism and all the rest of this, persuade Kim Jong-un, Chairman Kim, uh, to agree to give up all of his nuclear weapons and delivery means, and at the end of which we would then relax sanctions. And perhaps not surprisingly, uh, in fact, as the director of national intelligence predicted in their assessment of what Chairman Kim was likely to do, this did not prove persuasive. Uh, so I think it is now worth uh, stepping back and starting an iterative approach. Uh, to where, and it may be that the times are much more propitious now, certainly, than they were, again, when you were engaged in this, because Chairman Kim at that time was intent on consolidating his power, uh, eliminated his, killed his uncle in a particularly brutal manner, uh, had his half-brother killed, uh, and so forth. That's long since been... And his program wasn't advanced far enough for him to actually come to the table and with something to negotiate away. Yes. No, fair enough. Exactly right. Uh, But it certainly has been because, of course, the acceleration in the last two years of the missile testing and then nuclear testing until it was stopped, to be fair, as a result of the previous summit uh, that was conducted by the president. Um, And now you've had the subsequent summit, but that didn't get something in terms of a real deliverable. So I think but I do think you have a very good point person on this. Steve Began, Mike Pompeo has been engaged on this that now perhaps you sit down and start back with the issues that you and I were grappling with, which is let's get an inventory of what they have in the nuclear missile program. Let's get boots on the ground. To verify Get the experts back in to see it for themselves to verify it. Uh, And then let's figure out in a progressive manner 
steps that they could take, because, again, they apparently were willing to get rid of the Young Beyond site, which is the biggest and the most complex of the sites, but by no means the only one uh, in enrichment facility and, and, and other activities, uh, in return for which, again, there could be some reciprocal relaxation of some of the sanctions that Chairman Kim wants to get rid of. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with David Petraeus. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. David, I want to link these two for a second, China and North Korea, um, because I was intrigued by your coherence and comprehensive uh, big ideas with regard to China. And in that context, one would think that North Korea would be put in that context, that there's an Very opportunity so. right sure. here to work with China to get North Korea right. Very much so. China is the key to North Korea. In fact, the rhetoric that was employed by President Trump, then National Security Advisor uh, McMaster and others, uh, did get China's attention. And I think that was the that was why they did this. It wasn't just to get North Korea's attention. It was to uh, ensure that President Xi and the Chinese leaders realized that if they didn't actually implement the sanctions and put pressure on North Korea, keeping in mind that over 90 percent of the trade to and from North Korea goes through China, it's accurate to say that China essentially keeps the lights on in Pyongyang, has an umbilical cord uh, through which all of this trade flows back and forth. Uh, and again, that rhetoric did get their attention, uh, however, perhaps a bit excessive some of it may have been, uh, but that worked. And that, I think, arguably is what contributed to uh, Kim Jong-un going to the table in the first place, as well as the prospect of a photo op with the president of the world's uh, reigning superpower. Um, so, again, China does have to be a part of this process. And yet another area in which the relationship between the U.S. and China uh, is so very important as you look at the the overall uh, development of the world, with these two countries really being the ones, above all others, that will drive uh, global economics uh, in the years that lie ahead. So India, is India part of this India is part. And, of course, I think a very wise move made by this administration uh, where uh, Secretary Mattis at the time uh, changed the name of the U.S. Pacific Command to the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Uh, That is more than just symbolic. Uh, Really, you now look at the uh, Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia and East Asia as extending all the way from South Korea, Japan, Philippines, other island chains in there, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, two more allies, and then ultimately all the way to India. And the relationship with India, much more prominent, much more important. And in a perfect world, India being the next big source of growth for the world, the country that is growing faster than all others uh, at this point in time and likely to continue that because of the relatively lower level of development compared to a country that's already 
propelled itself upwards so impressively. China. So it's always been a tough place to do business, right? It tough is. place to get things and done. There, there are residual uh, acts, uh, and there are residual policies and so forth that date back to when India was non-aligned or a, or a leader of the non-aligned movement. Uh, the BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, all of that, those relationships are still there. But increasingly, the importance of the relationship between the U.S. and India uh, coming to the fore. And and how important that is if they're going to be part of this China uh, puzzle that you're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. They Again, there is a real reason to call this the Indo-Pacific, not just the Pacific Command. Yeah. And then maybe a little outside of the China piece, maybe not, Russia. would love to get your thoughts on Vladimir Putin, his mindset, how he thinks about the world, why he does what he does, and is there a way for us to moderate that behavior? Is there well, a big idea there? I think there is, and I think it starts with understanding... Vladimir Putin's objectives. Uh, what is it that he seeks uh, to achieve as the leader of Russia? And I think quite simply, it's useful to recall that in the previous century, he noted that the worst day of the 20th century was that which saw the dissolution of the uh, Soviet Union. And he really means that. And much of what he has done uh, has sought to put Russia back onto the map to give it a prominent place once again in the world. Uh, perhaps to restore certain elements of the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire. And he's sought to do this in a variety of ways. There's security relationships. None of these as significant as NATO or what used to lead the Warsaw Pact, but they are there. There is an economic uh, entity, the Eurasia Economic Union, uh, the EEU. It's a pale carbon copy of the EU, but again, another attempt uh, to cobble together uh, the near abroad that used to be dominated by the Russian Empire than the Soviet Union. At the end of the day, uh, Putin has shown a willingness to use his forces. Uh, they are uh, not what they used to be, certainly in the Soviet days, uh, but they are significant. And they have pioneered hybrid warfare, this warfare that is carried out uh, in cyberspace as well as on the ground and in the air and at sea. Uh, it's used with forces that are somewhat ambiguous in what it is they actually are, the little green men with no unit patches and so forth that clearly were special forces uh, from Russia uh, in the occupation of Crimea uh, and then supporting separatists in southeast Ukraine in the Donbass. He has used Russian air power and special forces in Syria basically to really tip the scales in that conflict at a time when Bashar al-Assad, the ruthless dictator of Syria, was most teetering. Uh, all of a sudden, Russia came in and has enabled Bashar al-Assad essentially to take control of much of the country uh, that was in a state of civil war. Uh, so again, has played an increasingly significant role uh, and a role that has been very unhelpful, uh, interfering in our own democratic election, the presidential election, attempting to put a finger on the scale of that and may, in fact, have done just that, certainly inflamed differences that already existed by the exploitation of social media and using uh, bots and all the other sophisticated means that they had uh, in cyberspace. So Russia, not a helpful 
uh, not a contributing force uh, to to world politics uh, from our vantage point. Certainly, um, clearly a revisionist power, one that is not satisfied with the status quo. Um, and so what do we need to do? Again, the big idea would be to be firm. And I don't think we have been sufficiently firm uh, on a couple of different occasions with respect to Russia. This is not to be provocative. We're not looking to start a fight or to uh, incite a fight. But, you know, why did it take two or three years for us to deliver to the uh, Ukrainian forces shoulder-launched anti-tank guided missiles, uh, which were approved by the Congress, authorized, and for which money was appropriated? And then there was a stall as to whether we would give. These are not an offensive uh, weapon system. You're not going to run to Moscow with this heavy uh, anti-tank weapon on your shoulder, but you will, in the defense, make Russian tanks pay a very heavy price if they continue further west in Ukraine and, for example, try to get a ground line of communications uh, to Mariupol, the big port city, or all the way to Crimea. So, again, I think now, to be fair, there have been sanctions. There have been other actions taken, and many of these quite courageously led by Germany, uh, the country in Europe that did vast amount of trading uh, with Russia. Uh, But again, I think you have to start by understanding what he has sought uh, for his country uh, as its authoritarian leader. Uh, I think you have to acknowledge that Russia is more than just what some have pejoratively described as a gas station with guns or a gas station with nukes. Um, And it is a player. Uh, It's a player we should seek to engage. Uh, We should always have dialogue. And when it comes back to China and the the biggest relationship in the world, uh, we should very much have strategic dialogue with them. It's imperative that they understand truly what are our vital national interests in our interpretation, and we should understand what theirs are and then try to figure out uh, how to come to agreement in areas where there are differences. The same is true when it comes to Russia. David, um, one more question about national security. Um, and then I want to come back to home, the United States. But radical Islam, jihadist Islam, um, extremist Islam, whatever you want to call it, what's the big idea around that? Well, I think there are five big lessons or big ideas we should have learned from this. And I'll try to go through these quickly from the wars of, against Islamist extremists uh, since 9-11 in particular. The first is that Ungoverned spaces in the Muslim world will be exploited by Islamist extremists. The second is you actually have to do something about it. You cannot do what we sometimes saw done by different administrations where you study the problem until it goes away. It's not going away. Las Vegas rules do not uh, obtain in these locations. Uh, What happens there doesn't stay there. They tend to spew violence, extremism, instability, and a tsunami of refugees, not just into neighboring countries, but all the way into our allies in Western Europe, where the result has been a dramatic increase in uh, domestic populism, uh, identity politics, and uh, right-wing nationalism. The third big idea is that U.S. generally has to lead, because as you know, our capabilities are so vastly greater than all of our allies put together times five or six when it comes to, for example, the drone uh, galaxy that we can put up this constellation almost of of predators and reapers and so on. Uh, that's not to say we don't want allies. We do. And we especially want uh, Muslim countries as allies. This is, after all, a, a fight for the heart of the Muslim world, even more than it is a clash between different civilizations. So we do 
very much want coalitions and the Obama and now uh, Trump administration's efforts to build the anti-ISIS coalition has been very, very important in this regard. The fourth big idea is that you cannot counter terrorists, these Islamist extremists, with just counter-terrorist force operations. You just can't drone strike or Delta Force raid your way out of this problem. You do have to employ those capabilities, uh, but you have to do much, much more. You have to have a comprehensive approach. But the ideal is that we are not doing all the different elements of the comprehensive approach as we had to. There was no choice, say, in the case of the surge in Iraq, where Ambassador Crocker and I oversaw a comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaign. Rather, what we want is for the host nation forces to be doing the fighting on the front lines, to be doing the political reconciliation, to doing the restoration of basic services, the reconstruction, uh, the reestablishment of, of schools and health clinics and local economies and all the rest of that. And what we want to do is train and equip, advise and assist and enable. And enabling is especially done with, again, use of our unmanned aerial vehicles, with precision strike assets that we can employ to support host nation forces uh, and also the industrial strength fusion of intelligence that you understand so well and is crucial to the overall uh, conduct of these campaigns. And then the five, the fifth uh, lesson is that this is a generational struggle at the least, and therefore you have to have a sustained commitment. I understand fully why presidents want to end wars rather than to start them, why they want to get out of wars and do nation-building at home. All of that is absolutely understandable. And I, in fact, I think no one understands it better than the individual who is privileged to command the surges in Iraq and Afghanistan and knows the cost that is entailed. But we do have to stay with this. Having said that, we need approaches that can be sustained for a generation. In other words, they're sustainable in terms of the expenditure of blood and treasure. And I believe that is possible. I think we have figured out how to do that. We have achieved that in Iraq. We have done that in Syria. It doesn't mean that we can go home. We need a sustained presence, a sustained commitment. Uh, but we have figured out how to dramatically reduce the cost at least to the U.S. and the allies, while noting that indeed host nations have borne a very, very heavy burden in this regard, but it is, after all, their, their countries for which they are fighting. But we now have, actually, we've taken fewer casualties uh, in the past year uh, than we lost in uh, terms of training accidents. So we have made enormous progress in this regard, although we have to continue to do that. But I think those are the five big lessons that we should have learned from this period of, of very long warfare, uh, and they should inform the policy as we go forward. And just to keep the theme going, as, as kind of the big ideas, they need to be, there needs to be focus on them, there needs to be somebody in charge of them, they need to be resourced, and those people need to be held accountable. Exactly And that's right. how you make sure those things happen. Exactly right. David, I want to switch gears from foreign policy to our own country, and we just have a few minutes here. We live, as you know, we live in the most politically divisive time, perhaps since Vietnam. We have big challenges here at home, and it's hard to think that we can get things right in the rest of the world without getting things right here first. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts, and I know this is taking you out of your, your career comfort zone at least. What do you see as the big ideas for the country, for the nation, for the United States as a whole? Well, Interestingly, this is yet another subject that I've been digging into as part of the uh, fellowship up at Harvard. And uh, one of the 
studies ongoing with some brilliant research assistants is the state of democracy in America. And in one word, I describe it as disrupted. Uh, it is suffering from the various challenges that you noted. The center has been hollowed out. Gerrymandering and a variety of other uh, developments have meant that the base of parties almost determines the person who's eventually elected because many of these districts uh, have become bright red or bright blue because of gerrymandering and, and, and other developments. Um, there's got to be a willingness to compromise. This, this fight to the death uh, for an issue which often results in nothing being done cannot be the way of business going forward. Compromise cannot be uh, a dirty word. Again, the the center needs to be reestablished. Uh, and this involves a lot of different issues. Money in politics is certainly one of them. Uh, but the inability to, to deal with what might be termed uh, headwinds uh, that are legislative, policy and regulatory headwinds and turn them into tailwinds uh, in Congress and in the executive branch. So it's in Washington because many state and local governments are actually working uh, as intended by the the founders uh, of the, the country. But coming to grips with issues such as fixing the education system so it doesn't leave 40 leave 40 percent of Americans behind, serious investment in infrastructure to improve productivity uh, of our workforce. Coming to grips with the debt to GDP uh, ratio, that is a big deal. It's growing very rapidly right now. Um, coming to grips with immigration, can we not do comprehensive immigration reform? Certainly uh, secure our borders better, but also provide a legal pathway for unskilled workers, for agriculture, hospitality, and other industries, uh, and enable more H-1B visas to be brought here as well, the smart people who are so critical in Silicon Valley and Silicon Alley and Silicon Beach. Uh, all of this needs to be addressed. In fact, I taught a course on that was related to this for three and a half years at the Honors College of the City University of New York. It was titled The North American Decades, which was my answer to what comes after the American century, North American decades, before the Chinese or Asian century. But the number of decades would be determined by how well Congress in particular did in turning these legislative, regulatory and policy headwinds into tailwinds. And I've mentioned a number of topics uh, where that needs to be done. Uh, and there are others as well. David, one more question. When, when you ran CIA, uh, you came into my office one afternoon and we were chatting and you said something to the effect that you loved the job, that um, it was an amazing job to be the director of CIA. Why did you feel that way? Well, it was the workforce and the mission, as you well know. Uh, there's just not a more patriotic, brilliant people, group of people uh, in America, I don't think. And, and I've been privileged to work with some of the most spectacular of those in uniform. Indeed, all that volunteered in the wake of 9-11 are truly extraordinary when you think about what they were doing when they raised their right hand and took the oath of enlistment recognizing that they were likely going to end up going to war in our country's uniform. But the CIA, people do that, and they don't even expect that they're ever going to get a retirement parade or a, a medal that can be publicly no uh, displayed. There's no bands, no bands. There's no big public events. There's none of that. And they're just so intent on serving their country. They Look, as you well know, folks in the CIA can't even go home and tell their neighbors what they do. 
much less what they actually did that day. Uh, you know, they, there's a variety of different sort of loose covers, i.e. that they're in the State Department or what have you. But if you think about the joys of life, certainly I'm sure you found post-government, as I have, I love talking about what it is I'm engaged in. Uh, and, of course, while in the CIA, folks can't even do that by and large. So it, it truly is an extraordinary group of Americans, and it was an extraordinary mission uh, with tremendous scope, frankly, for independent activity, certainly all governed by findings and laws and everything else. Um, and it was just marvelous, as you well know. Yeah. David, you had a personal stumble, which I know you took responsibility for. Um, you apologized for. You moved on. A lot of people wondering whether um, they'll see you back in public service at some point. Well, it's kind of you to ask. Um, look, I did. I made a mistake and you know, acknowledged it, um, apologized for it, paid for it. Uh, and I've been incredibly fortunate, actually, to be able to build a post-government portfolio of activities that has been incredibly intellectually stimulating, um, keeps a roof over our head very nicely and all the rest of that. Uh, and still does enable a certain degree of engagement with those in government who continue th- kindly to seek thoughts and advice from time to time. Um, but at the end of the day, again, serving one's country, as you again know very, very well for having done it for some three or more decades, uh, is truly an extraordinary privilege. Uh, and I had that for some 38 and a half years. And, and uh, I think that when those in government ask you to to assist that you have to at the very least consider it very yeah. very there seriously. There is no there is no greater um, privilege I think. I agree than with public you. service. I agree. Uh, the sense of a mission that is larger than self. Uh, there's no place that you feel that more intensely than when you are in yeah. government. David, thank you very much for joining us. It is great to be back with you again, Wingman. That was my nickname. <laughs> That was David Petraeus. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.